Good day all. Finally, this one has been a while coming, been threatening to happen for about two years, and it finally has, and well, it was definitely worth it. Dr. Christopher Beckwith was on the line with me to discuss his excellent book, Greek Buddha, Perot's encounter with early Buddhism in Central Asia, and much more, tying in some of this with his new book coming soon on the Scythian philosophy. Dr. Beckwith is an award-winning American philologist at the University of Indiana in the Eurasian Studies Department and has written several excellent books on Central Asia. Links to those books are in the, the uh, description. If you're already aware of Dr. Beckwith's ideas, you can skip ahead to the start of the interview. Otherwise, for the uninitiated, some basic premises I'm going to give to you now, just to give you also an idea of just how radical some of the material presented by Dr. Beckwith is, and particularly in this podcast where we go beyond the book. That's uh, the theme of this podcast. So just quickly, Pyrrho was an influential Greek philosopher and the father of Pyrrhonism, and I suppose loosely the skeptical tradition, although he wasn't really a skeptic himself. Uh, he was a poet in Alexander the Great's retinue, and probably came across the early Buddhists very close to the historical Buddha's death. And while there, he took some element of the early Buddhist tradition back to Greece with him. And this in turn has shaped all sorts of the intellectual traditions in the West, even all the way down to David Hume, who we discuss, who wrangled with, you know, some of the same problems. Uh, the really nuclear claim for Buddhists listening to this is that the Buddha himself was not reacting against Brahmanism as presented in the Buddhist texts and histories, but Scythian Zoroastrianism. And that not only that, but Brahmanism in fact came after Buddhism, which if true is pretty damn mind-blowing. And of course, that's not all. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And if, even if you have a look at the show notes now, you'll notice that there are some full-blown mind-bogglers in there and that uh, without a doubt, you're going to take away a whole lot from this podcast. And I anxiously await his new book that's coming out soon. Uh, obviously, given the subject matter, Dr. Beckwith is very detailed, very well thought out. And we went for a touch under two hours. So timestamps are provided if certain parts are of more interest to you. Okay, here we go. Okay, well, um, this has been some time coming, Chris. I know we've been in correspondence for maybe, you know, a year or two or something like that. And I think that the first time I contacted you um, was, of course, when, uh, when the apocalypse was first descending upon us. Um, and I understand since then you've had uh, some projects um, that sound very interesting that have been uh, demanding of your time. And so I'm, I'm just really glad to have you on finally. Um, you're... Uh, quite popular in our circles um, because of your revolutionary outlooks. And uh, yeah, I think you'd be surprised. There's a lot of people that, that, that are really into it. Um, so I think this interview is probably going to be a, a pretty big one, actually. Um, so I think to start with, we'll just do the token academic background thing, keeping in mind that I've, I've given a bit of an introduction prior to, to the interview. And I guess more specifically, how you came to be interested in Central Asia in general, um, as I believe you've obviously, well, not believe, I know you've written several books concerning uh, ancient cultures in that area. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I've never been asked exactly that question, <clears throat> but I think part of it has to come with from my 
uh, my origins. So I was actually born and raised for the first 11 years of my life up in um, a place called the UP, the Upper Peninsula of what is now of the state of Michigan. And it's actually geologically a part of Canada. Um, and it wasn't really connected to anything uh, except uh, uh, by some distance. And so we lived in a remote, very small town. And uh, we didn't actually live in the town. We lived outside the small town. It was an hour, hour and a half, um, a mile, a mile and a half walk uh, to town. I walked to school when I was a kid. And um, uh, outside of our house, just behind our house, was the great north woods, you know, as in Siberia, you know, <laughs> trees for, I mean, all the way to the Arctic Circle. Um, and um, so I, I played a lot in the, the forest, and my, my brother and I. And um, I used to go wandering in, in there. And it was sort of a place of, um, um, you could get away from people if you wanted to. <laughs> so um, it was sort of like, um, um, here you are, you're doing whatever you need to do and so on, everything's going fine. But then something happens and that's a way to, to, to get away. And uh, so I found that out when I was a little kid, a very small kid. Um, and so when you read about Central Eurasia, I mean, general central Eurasia. So the whole thing, the central part of Eurasia being, meaning Europe and Asia altogether, one continent, uh, of which Central Asia is a part. It's the, the kind of the uh, urbanized, uh, more civilized part, you might say, uh, traditionally. But uh, Central Eurasia as a whole, the most important part actually wasn't there. It was the steppe zone, which is grassland. Not trees, not forest, but that's where people could go and if you were there, you could escape from that one part of it to another part by moving, as I found out when I read about them. Uh, and I was in college already, and I wrote a, read a book about um, a traveler, an explorer, a fictionalized account of an actual Russian explorer who went to Central Asia and uh, Mongolia and Tibet. Okay, and um, who was that? Was that um, the, out of Well, I, I think maybe Kozlov, but anyway, it was the... The book was called Kukushkin, a really good read. It was a, um, a fictionalized account and translated into English. Uh, and uh, it was my mom had gotten it from the library. I was back in, in, in at home, and at that time we moved south to Ohio. And I moved, went there um, after I'd been in Taiwan for a while, and um, she had this book sitting on her coffee table. And so I looked at it. And I thought, this is really good. And she and I asked her about it. She said, oh, yeah, that's a great book. I found it in the library. <laughs> so my mom. So it's kind of a family and upbringing kind of thing, ultimately, in there. I had gotten interested in, in Tibetan uh, in high school, actually, before that, but on my own, by working in the public library and uh, looking at all the books as I worked there and um, noticed these books about Tibet and uh, Buddhism and read all of them and tried learning some Tibetan from one of them, which is almost impossible. But anyway, I did learn a little bit from it. I hear it's a, a quite a difficult language, quite a hard a, a alien kind of language. There's not a lot like it. Is that the case? It's very different from English, uh, but it, and it, as a spoken language, it's not particularly difficult to learn if you just learn the spoken language. Um, and as the um, old Tibetan is not really so difficult as it might be. Uh, but the classical language, uh, Buddhist language, uh, classical texts, 
especially translations uh, from Sanskrit, they're very difficult unless you have a tr special training uh, in reading that stuff. Um, and I was never interested in it, so I didn't get that training. But anyway, that's kind of where I got into it. And I was I was in Chinese major as an undergraduate, so I went to Taiwan and was studying there and Chinese literature in, in National Taiwan University. And uh, it just didn't, uh, I guess I lost interest in it or something while I was there. I liked Taiwan very much. And um, so I learned to speak Chinese better and to read and write Chinese better. And that was what I got out of that. But I decided after reading that book that I mentioned <clears throat> that I think, okay, I'll apply not only to East Asian pro programs for a PhD, I decided to, to switch from Taiwan back to the United States. And um, and then I would apply also to um, Indiana University, where I happened to know somebody um, who was a student here and, and also teacher uh, who was in our department, the department at that time. Um, it had a different name. It was called the Department of Uralic and Altaic Studies. And um, and so I was accepted at these other schools. And even though they said, well, nobody offered me, you know, a fellowship or anything. So I, they said, well, we'll help you borrow anything you need. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but uh, this one was less expensive. And it was also, it wasn't the cost at all that appealed to me. It was the idea of studying all these strange languages, you know, not only Tibetan and Mongolian, Uzbek, and um, all sorts of other languages besides the standard ones, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Arabic, and so on. So um, so I came here and it, it, it caught me, it hooked me, and I've been here ever since. And they changed the name when I was chairman. I had the name changed to Cent Department of Central Eurasian Studies. So that's my background. Is, is it common to have a department like that? It sounds quite fortuitous to, the only to come. One. <laughs> the only one, really. Okay. The only one, so far as I know, in the world. There are uh, pro programs in some of the languages, you know, in some departments of this or that, you know. So you might be able to do, I don't know, Mongolian or something in an East Asian studies department or Tibetan in a South Asian studies department. But there and there are some programs in inner Asian studies. There's one at Harvard and some other universities have similar things, uh, programs. But this is the only department that I know of an actual independent academic unit. And it has its good, you know, good things and bad things uh, about it. But but on the whole, it's been fairly, uh, fairly good for the students who've come here and been sort of uh, we've stuck it out <laughs> it certainly sounds like it gave you a good launching pad to um to do what you what you do uh, so so keeping in mind that um this podcast is essentially about uh pyro and the greek buddha um which is a book that you wrote some time ago and i, I just want to keep that in mind because there's going to probably going to be a lot of details that you've you've forgotten or or mm -hmm. you know uh, can't recall because it's a very detailed book obviously and yes, I, I would suggest to people if if they want a really deep dive into this that they go and purchase it immediately. It's uh, an excellent, excellent book. Um, so keeping this in mind, and I think particularly unlike my audience, uh, I'm in possession of probably what I describe as a fairly pedestrian IQ, probably compared to yourself. But um, we'll we'll try to keep it general and um, easy for people to. Uh, to comprehend and understand. And I'd like to basically just paint a picture uh, of what we're getting at here and and why this is important. Um, many in the audience probably have some idea, um, and I know some listeners absolutely have a good understanding of this, but um, 
I think it, it will come from you best to discuss this. But could we just get a brief rundown of Greek Buddha um, and perhaps what your intellectual starting point was that led you to write such a book uh, concerned with the historical Buddha and his outlooks? Um, uh, very good question. I've been trying to remember. Um, I actually wrote the book, um, the draft manuscript, 10 years ago. And it took me another, you know, couple of years to polish it up and finish it and send it off to the press. And then they always took back then about three years to produce the book. So you can, that's why it's 2015. Um, so um, uh, it's not only that I haven't really read it for a while. Um, I mean, it's a long, even more that I've written it. And some, there's some things that I've discovered since then that um, I, I realize I must um, revise, make, doing a revised edition of that book. Yes, I think that's one of my, my best books. And uh, um, I learned things while working on my re most recent book, which is about the Scythians, the Scythians, and their philosophy, also one of the big parts of the book. So um, I know you want to know about that. But about Pyrrho, um, I have to say I was interested in this already in college. Going back, I took a class in, um, um, I was a Chinese major, as I mentioned. And um, so I, I, I don't know why, but I had a friend who was interested in philosophy, a philosopher, a couple of friends interested in philosophy. So I decided I better learn something about philosophy. And I took, signed up for a course, which um, I, I didn't have to take, but it turned out it had over 300 students in it because it fulfilled some sort of requirement. So I said, way in the back, way up, 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 you know, at, 20th row or something in this enormous lecture hall and this uh, apparently well-known professor um, taught and I most of it I, I didn't find very interesting but he did talk about what he called a classical skepticism in one lecture and I thought oh, that sounds great that sounds like me <laughs> so I, I went, to, went out to the library and found the Loeb uh, classical library uh, translation and text of uh, um, Sexus Empiricus, which is what uh, he's citing all the time as being the main source. Of course, that's late Pyrrhonism, as I now know, but at the time I didn't know any better. And I thought, oh, this is really great stuff, you know. So I read this book and filed that away. And, I, and uh, the next semester, quarter or so, one or two quarters later, I had to write a paper for a Chinese philosophy class, which I was taking as a Chinese major. And so I, I wrote this paper comparing Greek Pyrrhonism and uh, Chinese Taoism. And I had no idea then, well, I got good grade on the paper and the teacher liked it and everything like that, but I had no idea that it was, you know, it was on the right track. <laughs> so I discovered this while working partly on this book. And there are some parts of it that mention uh, uh, Lao Tzu uh, Taoism. And um, partly in my new book, uh, which is called the, the Scythian Empire, Scythian Empire. Um, and um, it, um, it, there's a whole chapter called uh, Scythian Philosophy, uh, which deals with that. But anyway, um, so how I got into the study of, of what Pirro was doing, I don't know, but at some point, it was probably always in the back of my mind. And um, because I was dealing with uh, Central Asia a lot, I dealt a lot with Central Asia, both in antiquity and in the early Middle Ages, starting with the early Middle Ages, actually, um, that I had my mind on that area. 
And that must be where the, the Buddha or his ancestors came from. Uh, we know about that uh, from various things that I mentioned them, I discussed them in the book. Um, and the Scythians call themselves Sakas. Uh, and at some point, the, land, the name Skutha changed, Skutha changed according to regular rules and according to different and in different dialects. But in the main dialect of, of Scythian, ancient Scythian, they started, they, the name became Saka instead of Skutha, it became Sukta or something, Sakta, something like Sakta. Sakta. And then the, um, the, the D would disappear. So it's just Saka. And it actually follows completely regular rules within Scythian. Uh, it's hard to recognize, and most scholars haven't recognized it. So the Scythians were calling themselves Scythians still, Scythians, but they uh, they said Saka, and not all of them did, but most of them. So Sakyamuni, you may have seen it, it's Shakyamuni, actually. That's the Sanskrit epithet for the Buddha. And people have always wondered about that. It means the sage of the Shakas, or the Sakas, the Scythians. Um, and if it's been traditionally interpreted by Buddhologists and Indologists, as, um, and especially in India and Nepal, as being the uh, sage of the Shakyas, who are, are supposedly a, there are um, a clan of people living in, in Nepal, because there was this story that the Buddha was from Nepal, and so on and so on. Well, it turns out not to be correct. Uh, so whether or not the, the Shakyas are, are, are Shakas, actually, Sakas, it's quite possible that they might actually have some connection with the ancient Sakas. Uh, so it's possible that the Buddhist, you know, people, they moved there, or he moved there in that general area. It's quite possible. We don't have any evidence for it. So, um, but I wanted to find out, I don't remember how exactly, but I got interested in this topic again. And so that's why I was looking into it more and more. And I just found out about, I read some of the scholarship on it. Actually, one of the things that, that got me seriously into working on a book on it was Richard Betts. Uh, book, uh, Pyrrho, um, which is a, an excellent book uh, from the point of view of Greek philosophy. It does have the pretty much standard uh, view, which is that it was he was a Greek doing things for Greek reasons, because there are other Greeks, because he was a Greek, lived in Greece and Europe. There. Yeah, he, yeah, he went to India for a while. He was in Alexander the Great's entourage, and we know that's accepted, and it's very clear that he did that. And he came back, and, and blah, blah, blah. But he was still a Greek, and it's all for Greek reasons. Now, Richard Bett is not an extremist in that. He does give credit to certain things which are outstandingly, remarkably, unusually different from everybody else in Greek thought. And he met, points those out, two things, I think, um, and suggests one or two other things that may be something to do with his, ex his experience in India. Uh, so um, I just... Thought I got to track this down and read all this stuff. <laughs> so, so, so I did that, and the more I got into it, the more I just well, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, so um, and the thing is, that one of the things that had had been ah, I remember. Sorry, there was a, one particular thing that that got me onto this that I hadn't really been dealing with it for you know, decades. Is that when I I wrote my the book before this or two books before it, um, Empires of the Silk Road. There was, um, I, I covered lots and lots of topics fairly briefly, but it covers the central Eurasia from the Bronze Age to the present. That's about 4,000 years of history. And so some things had to be covered, you know, pretty sketchily. And I don't know, I'm not an expert in, of course, all that stuff. 
so I depended on secondary sources, but some of the things I, I was more interested in others and look into more. And at some point in that doing that or after that, I um, I continued to, it's inter my interest in the, um, the Buddhism in Central Asia and so on. So my next book after that was actually Warriors of the Cloisters, which is about, um, it's, I'd say it's history of science. Uh, uh, I forgot the subtitle, but anyway, history of science in Central Asia, early history. Uh, the Buddhists are the ones who are responsible for the scientific method, uh, what people used to you, what people used to call the scientific method anyway. Um, and uh, the college actually is not a European invention like all the Europe, almost all the Europeans, as a scholar say. Uh, it was an importation, and it's actually historical. It's, it's all in my book, that book, Warriors of the Cloisters. So that got me more and more interested in, in Central Asia as a as a Buddhist locus, and I think that's the reason why I've ended up, you know, doing this book. But that's a guess. I, I can't I can't say for sure. Does that help any? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's very detailed. That's excellent. So so just to circle back, and I just want to make it clear for maybe some of the listeners who are not up to speed on some of these topics. So we're talking about Pyrrho of Elis. Who was I, I believe was he the first Greek skeptic philosopher? I'm not 100% clear on that, but um, he, he's definitely one of the first, isn't he? Uh, he's probably the first actually the first um, actual uh, skeptic. There are two several kinds of skeptics. There are what they call academic skeptics and Pyrrhonian skeptics. So Pyrrho, obviously the Pyrrhonian, he's the foundation founder of that. Tradition it wasn't a school, and an organized school. Um, it has to, it, he couldn't be according to his own teaching. So it's this sort of an an, an unschool, <laughs> or yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A, a, a thought, and it continued. But sure. Um, and and you're yeah. suggesting then that um, uh, Pyrrho, who was I believe he was a poet as well, wasn't he? He was with Alexander's retinue through Central Asia, and then through that time he picked up. Uh, the the philosophy of the Buddha and probably other uh, Central Asian philosophies as well, I would imagine. Or do you contend that it was just early Buddhism that he really interacted with? It seems to be just early Buddhism uh, because people have said that before because they had a very vague idea about uh, India and what Indians uh, Indian thought was like at that time. Um, as it happens, we have nothing um, before Piro's. Uh, Piro's visit there and Alexander's visit there. And so we have things in Greek from that visit. Uh, so the people who are with his court um, visited, in, they were in Takshila, which is near what is now Rawalpindia in Pakistan. Um, and um, they uh, that was one of the, the main cities there, ancient Takshila, T-A-X-I-L. And um, so anyway, they stayed there for a while, and uh, Piro was with them. And they, the philosophers were hanging out mainly just outside the city. And so they met these people and saw them, what they were doing, and they described them. They were sort of astonished by some of it. And of course, this got everybody interested in it. So they wrote their reports. And Piro didn't write anything after his experience with with the poem with uh, that he describes. He wrote a poem to dedicated to Alexander, a panegyrical poem, praising him, you know. And Piro, uh, Alex liked it a lot. So he um, poured 10,000, he, he gave him 10,000 gold coins 
Oh, a fortune, of course. Not not bad for a day's work. Oh, I, I take that. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that Alex and me like to do is to to um, you know really give a huge you know reward to somebody, not just a little reward, but a huge one. So then it was shortly after that 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 Piro overheard was with the teacher he'd picked up with Anaxarchus, um, a Greek philosopher who was in the court, um, and. Um, he was chastised by an Indian for pandering to the king or to kings or whatever like that and not uh, being a, um, a model for people to learn from. And so Pyrrha was sitting, you know, his face goes red. You know, you can imagine this, you know, what you just do. And so from then he, he withdrew from society and he obviously studied with somebody there. It was a Buddhist. Everything is Buddhist. It's early Buddhist. And, and it'd be really good, sorry to interrupt, but just to go into that quickly. Um, so obviously through this process, you've noticed similarities between Buddhism and Pyrrhonism or skepticism, his, his form of skepticism. Can we talk about some of those similarities and, and what, what yes. you noticed? Yes. Yeah. Just let me just say what I was going to say is that we don't have any sources other than uh, Pyrrho, you know, second study of Pyrrho's uh, um Pure thought, which is recorded in, in an obscure way, but anyway, it's recorded. Um, it goes directly back to something that he said, which is, and there's some other sources on that. But when it comes to India, what the the uh, culture was like there, what it could have been like, all the different schools there, all the traditions from Indian thought are all from the late antiquity or the Middle Ages, and they're mostly uh, very fanciful and full of magic and all kinds of things and have virtually nothing to do with reality. So they don't tell us what even early Buddhism was like, not to speak of early Hindus or Brahmanism or any of those other belief systems, what they were, were they, did they even exist yet? You know, we don't have, we only get some information coming from uh, the first inscriptions, first things written in India were the inscriptions of a king known as um, Priyadarshi. Um, and who's been traditionally been called Ashoka. But there are two sets of inscriptions, and the other ones, which have the name Ashoka on them, actually, some of them, um, are uh, much later, probably several centuries later, uh, and have nothing to do with this earlier stuff, which says very little. It does say something. And, they're, and the, the, this man, King Priyadarshi, was uh, apparently an adherent of some kind of Buddhism. He calls it the Dharma, Dhamma. Um, but so that's all we have. So in, in order to get, and we have a, then we have a report of a Greek um, envoy um, who was an ambassador like to the then King of India about 30 years afterwards. Um, and 30 years, 20, 30 years after Pyrrho was there. Um, Megasthenes is his name. His, he wrote a book when he came back. It's called Indica. It's been lost, but uh, fragments of it have been preserved, including lo long sections on the thought of those people in India. So actually we have hard data in that book. It's, it's pretty limited, but some of it's quite specific. And it tells us about what some of those people thought, including early Buddhists and early Brahmanists. And, for, and another school that you mentioned in one of your uh, questions for me is the uh, Gimnatai, uh, the, uh, the naked ones, uh, usually called the uh, gym, gym, Gymnosophistai. Uh, the gymnosophists, but that's actually a later popular term uh, 
the correct term was, in fact, the naked ones, and it was a specific sect. It wasn't just all those ancient philosophers who were wrapped together as the gymnosophistae <laughs> is supposed to mean. So I'm sorry, to, I just want to make that clear before we move on to that other question. Yeah, what was your question now? So, certainly, no, no, uh, uh, that was wonderful. Thank you. It, it was just concerning, obviously, through this process, you'd, you'd looked at uh, Pyrrhonism and you looked at uh, early Buddhism. Uh, what are some of the similarities and concepts that led you to uh, put the picture together um, and to and to see the the link there. Yes. Um, well, um, the thing is that the the key most important um, bit of data we have for Pyrrho's thought, which goes back according to all the testimonies directly to Pyrrho himself, well, the central part of it is a short passage that is in a a work. It was it was in a work written by a student Timon called the Pytho of Put. Uh, Python, um, and uh, that's actually refers to the god, uh, and um, then that was lost. But uh, portions of that, a large part of that, was available still in antiquity. So various people copied uh, bits from it. And um, this um, Aristotelian philosopher Aristocles uh, lived around about uh, two thousand years ago. He wrote a book on philosophy, and because Pyrrhonism had a um, Kind of a uh, in fashion was back in fashion again after having seemingly more or less just almost disappeared for a while. Um, so he had to write about it. So he wrote about Pyrrho and Pyrrhonism. There's a whole chapter on it, and that was uh, his chapter was copied over in uh, by Bishop of Eusebius, uh, Bishop um, Eusebius of Caesarea in the Holy Land uh, in his book on introduction to um, introduction to the Introduction to the Bible, I think it is, or Introduction to, to Holy Studies or something. I've forgotten the title. But anyway, um, so that is preserved, fortunately, for us. And what, what uh, Aristocles uh, quotes, and he quotes this passage, because that passage is so important, it's usually called the Aristocles passage. And people ignore everything else in, in the chapter, which is not good, because other parts, other, other bits, are also um, going back, to, apparently, to the same um, fount of information, and so people have not paid much attention to that. So I pay attention to it. But the, the key passage is this Aristocles passage. It's been studied and read by many people and translated and tried, and people have tried to interpret it. And it's really difficult. Nobody can really figure it out. We have all sorts mm -hmm. of problems with it. And the, the the key part of it, the most important part of it, is that Pyrrho says about. Um, uh, Timon's, Timon, his student, is the one who frames this. He said he asked, you know, he got this from Pyrrho. And so he's, what are um, pragmata like? Pragmata is the word, the equivalent of dharmas. Dharmas are the constituents, the, uh, um, that make up everything uh, in the conceptual universe. Right. And so in English, pragmata means like ethical matters, uh, basically. Is that correct? Yes, like, yes, basically any kind of thing. So if you're talking about... Um, um, goodness and and justness, just uh, justice and all these sorts of things. Those are uh, ethical issues. Uh, so that, that people say, is this is this good or bad? You know, is it just or unjust? That sort of those are the classic uh, questions that they the AM, especially the Pyrrhonists, they use those a lot. And it turns out lots of other people did too. But anyway, that's those are the, among the examples that are there. So um, and so yes, what are uh, these uh, um, pragmata like these dharmas, and uh, Pyrrho says, 
um, they are um, they are all um, uh, adiaphora. Um, they are all uh, undifferentiated. Uh, they are um, uh, this is what this is what the words literally mean. They are unbalanced or Im somehow imperfect in some way, and they are um, uh, not fixed or established. Mm. Okay. Which well, which could mean impermanent if you think about yeah, it. Yes, it yeah. certainly can. Uh, it certainly can. And yeah, and that struck me that whoa, what is this out here? You know, and and um, so I, I read more about this and studied the Greek and redid everything um, myself and wrote a long article which was published in 2010 or 2011 on on this passage um, on the Greek and on the text and everything. And um, anyway, um, so thinking about it, looking at it, it's just striking that these are the three things. And then he has um, another bit in there saying that, and so because of this, that you, because they, things are like that, therefore you can't tell the difference between uh, truth and uh, truth and the false, the, tr uh, the truth and a lie, or whatever, truth and, fa and falseness. Um, and, um, and also, um, so what should you do, you know, and um, it's, it's at some point in here that it becomes Timon talking, but I think it's still Pyrrho until the second three group of three things. All, everything's negative. This is extremely important. Pyrrho doesn't say anything positive. It's all negative, in, in negative. Not this, not this, not that, not this. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know that kind of thing. He doesn't say what you should do. He says what you should not do. So it's completely devoid of metaphysics, essentially. Is that how you describe it? Absolutely. Yes. No metaphysics involved at all. And um, and people have tried to explain it as metaphysics. It just doesn't make any sense. But then the the, third, the second part is then he says so you you shouldn't uh, um, have any views. Have no views. It's extremely important. <laughs> have no views uh, about things and opinions or whatever, um, and uh, don't be, um, don't uh, let yourself be unbalanced. So stay balanced somehow. You know, um, don't be pulled this way and that, and um, and then um, stick stick to it. Don't give up. <laughs> so basically, that's the, that's what he teaches, um, and um, and of course. If you know anything about the best work uh, in Buddhism, which I didn't know at the time, I knew some a little bit about it, but um, I read a lot more. Uh, the best work on trying to establish what early Buddhism was from in inside, using the sutras and um, other texts that we have from the tra tra from the tradition. Um, and um, I think it was Luis Gomez who points who, who talks about the uh, no views, and that is in, in some of the absolute earliest Pali. Uh, suttas. And so is that, um, does that mean it goes back to, to the time of the Buddha because it's in the Pali suttas or in the later Mahayana sutras or anything? No, it doesn't mean that for sure. But it, it, ex it corresponds exactly to what Pyrrho says. And nobody else in Greek thought ever said anything like that, never imagined saying anything like that. They say, oh, no, you must have the right way. This is my way is the right way, my teachings. You know, so Pyrrho didn't say that at all. Don't have any, you know, none of that stuff. <laughs> so uh, this is his teachings just line up so directly and perfectly with uh, those of uh, the Buddha in the earliest core teachings, which are it's called the, the three characteristics of all dharmas, the tree, tree lakshana, tree lakshana. Um, and um, 
and those have this, you know, the famous all things are, well, I mean, all dharmas are impermanent, right? Impermanent. And they're uh, dukkha, whatever dukkha means, it's disputed, still very much disputed. But it, it's clearly the negative of sukha. Sukha is, is good. But actually, it, what is ka? <laughs> ka is important. This is probably not a Sanskrit or Indic word at all, something else. Maybe it was Scythian, I don't know. And then the third thing was, what was the other thing? Was, um, oh, yes, the equivalent of adhyavra. I mean, all things are, um, are, um, have, have no uh, self-identity, no inherent self-identity. A soul, we call that a soul for, pe for people. Uh, or people say, oh, well, trees have souls. In this. Well, it actually is an inherent identity of some sort. Um, and those are the things which distinguish one thing from another, one person from another, this inherent identity. That's what it's, what it's talking about. The same thing as Piro has. And Piro, from, it appears that it's, it's switched, the order of them. So he puts that first and he puts the impermanent last. But the three things, they're all negative they have the same import. Um, they have the same logic. And the logic is very important. Nobody, sorry to say, no, nobody ever really studied the logic of them. They're connected. It's not just, you know, he pulled this one out of the blue here and he went over there. Oh, look at that tree, uh, that Bodhi tree. I'll get this other one here. And then there's this other one. Oh, oh whatever. Um, so it was very carefully, it's really um, very deep. And that, that tree lakshana is the, core of Buddhist traditional meditation. That was the goal that and then when the Buddha achieved um, um, Bodhi or Nirvana, it's called in the earliest texts, that's what he got. It was enlightenment. Um, he, he, um, he reached this, uh, the, I forgot the, uh, the dhyana, the fourth dhyana or something, uh, particular one, which is, which is focuses on the Trilakshana. He, oh, that's how it worked, you know, or that was his solution is to figure out the tree lakshana, I suppose. But anyway, um, uh, that was his breakthrough. And when Puro was in India, clearly he this was his early Buddhism period, not late Buddhism, not what we normally refer to as Buddhism. It was really almost nothing like it, um, mm -hmm. except for some of the basic teachings and uh, uh, some of the particular features of Buddhism, which are from the beginning, probably from the Buddha himself. It, it would be interesting uh, to go through maybe some stories about how Piro uh, lived. I, I know you present a few in your book because I, th I think it's like an interesting way of viewing, you know, at least what he took from India at the time. Um, would you be able to relate a few of those stories? Well, the stories, I don't know, but the stories are worth reading on their own. They're, they're interesting stories. But uh, the most Im important po points are the uh, what seem to be the historical um, bits. One of the things that the Buddha did was to wander. Buddhists wandered, and they still do in many cultures. They wander. They travel around. Uh, they they beg. Um, some of them live in the in the forest or wherever. They're a smaller, smaller group, the more serious ones, and they wandered around. Well, the Scythians wandered that they're nomads. Nomads means wanderers. Um, so it's the most normal thing in the world for somebody to do that. And I just wondered one of the things that I, one of the questions that I asked myself back then, well, what about these uh, the um, uh, peripatetic philosophers of ancient Greece? 
And the Chinese seem to do the same thing. They walk around a lot while they're teaching. You know, well, why do they do that? Well, did they not have a place to live? Or did they just, or they just accustomed to walking around or riding around a lot to, to keep moving? I don't know. But um, it's one of the striking things about, about the early Buddhists and traditional Buddhism is that they wandered. So in this, they talk about Piro wandering. He would go off with people and wander. <laughs> it says so many accounts. And everybody is so astonished by this, of course. Um, that's one thing. Another one is that they have this comment about him, that he was you know, uniformly unmoved. He would apparently sit. Oh, just a second. Oh, um, another hour, probably. Just go ahead and eat, Hina. Um, sorry, where was I? Um, yeah, he, he was. Um, he and he he was able to uh, endure surgery without any any flinching or anything. Like he was not even conscious of it. How did he do that? You know, this is one of the things that the, the ancient Indian um, uh, philosophers that are described by the Greeks when they were there with Alexander and Mag Megasthenes as well. Uh, that they would um, have this kind of yoga, what we would call yoga, which is they meditate, of course, but they do this while they're holding a position, sometimes holding a large, heavy object at the same time to make it more difficult, for hours at a time, unmoved. So, boing, this is another thing which struck me, okay. <laughs> and um, what was the other thing? There was a... it's, it's interesting, just on that point, because I practice Buddhism, uh, and been on meditation retreats. And, and one of the teachers told me once, you know, your exercise is, you, you, if you can sit in that chair all day and not move, then, uh, you, you know, you're getting somewhere, <laughs> which which I refuse to do. But uh, yeah, I, I can see how that would be something that they would look at. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and another thing was that he remained unmarried um, and he um, remained unmarried. Um and what was the other thing? Yeah, being unmarried is no big deal. But um, it's something about, uh, ah, yeah, he's, he's, he had a sister. He took care of his sister. Uh, but, um, but basically, he lived almost like a hermit. And, um, and so a lot of things about Piro, and he was considered to be like a holy man. And his hometown uh, gave uh, him a built set up a statue to him in, in the marketplace as described by um, Pausanias, the famous Greek, uh, uh, I guess, geographer who traveled around Greece and described the antiquities, um, including this um, Pyrrhus. And he said there's a tomb to Pyrrhus nearby. Uh, so he was thought very highly, thought of very highly by his, his, his uh, um, fellow townsman. He didn't actually live in a town, probably. He lived outside somewhere. I see. So you mentioned earlier, and we'll just continue down this line. And after this, I want to circle back to the Brahmanism connection at some point. Um, so we'll spend a little bit of time on this. But you mentioned you came across Sextus Empiricus first. That was the first exposure you had to um, skepticism. Um, now, for the audience, I don't think they fully understand necessarily the implications of this and the significance of this connection because this has gone on then to influence a whole lineage of philosophers uh, through history uh, and particularly in Europe uh, 
even going through with David Hume, for example, who has obviously had an enormous impact on on science and the way we view things in general, and perhaps even in many ways set the path for even something like postmodernism, maybe. I mean, so uh, can we go through uh, maybe the problem of criterion um, and, and what that is and then how this has gone on then to influence European thought and philosophy a little bit through the ages? Yes. <clears throat> well, the problem of the criterion, uh, I actually looked into what I wrote about this and um, it's, um, there's a second, I have it. All nice summary. Um, so the ancient problem of the criterion, it's already in ancient Greek, Greece after Pyrrho. Um, this became one of the major topics of philosophy. Actually, all of philosophies changed after Pyrrho, Pyrrho and Timon. Um, they essentially invalidated much of the other philosophy, at least they said that they did. And a lot of people had to agree with them. Um, and that was because of the problem of the criterion. And um, this is the way it runs in the ancient version. In order to have absolutely correct, true knowledge about anything, you must have a criterion that distinguishes between true and false, right? Uh, well, in order to know if the criterion is correct, allows you to choose between true and false, we need to use another criterion to make sure you have the right criterion, a true or false criterion. So we need to have a criterion to pick that. But in, in order to pick that criterion, we have to have a, you know, be able to choose the, again, the true and false one to, to choose the truer, chooser criterion, which will choose the other one, and so on, ad infinitum. It's impossible to have a criterion of truth as the, the, uh, the uh, conclusion to this. Pirro doesn't put it that way. Um, Pirro is, let me just have it here. It's in his uh, three, um, the three characteristics of all uh, pragmata and so on that I, we, that I mentioned, um, all dharmas, that, um, yes. So he says, um, um, right, because pragmata don't, uh, the things, uh, philosophical things, not real things, but, um, different um, ethical um, objects. And they don't actually have in differentiate of their own because nothing has its own differentia. That's what um, uh, Pyrrho says, um, and following the Buddha. Um, so they don't have them different differentia by, by nature. For example, uh, we see somebody that makes a face at you, and you don't have a little label next to that face. You know, like in, in a cartoon, you know, there'll be a drawing. You have a little balloon that says anger pointing to him. You know, that's an angry face. And you have another, that makes somebody makes another face and you have another little balloon there or a little label says uh, happiness or something. We don't have any labels. Um, so none of these things are labeled. What we do is we supply those, those terms, those labels for everything. And this is just silly examples, but the basic point is that there aren't any intrinsic differentia in anything. We supply those. those are, they're created by people. So that makes the entire process of doing this sort of a logical thing, trying to determine, you know, true, truth and versus uh, falseness and good and bad and so on. Um, again, all those things have no actual differentia so that we supply them so that the entire process of choosing them 
using whatever method you want is going to be strictly circular and logically invalid. That's the way. That's the way uh, it's traditionally analyzed. So this is this is Piro's uh, statement of it, actually. And he says because of the things don't have their own, um, you know, differentiate, then we cannot tell the difference between truth and falseness, uh, you know, a lie and an untruth, um, and so on. So he says that we can't tell the difference between them. Yeah. So the 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 uh, takeaway from this is that you know, well, this applies to everything, and if this applies to everything, and by the way, all the way through when it was revived, Puranism was revived. Uh, when um, actually when Sextus Empiricus was translated um, in the rena late Renaissance and um, and uh, actually Hume didn't read Sextus Empiricus. He may not have known about it. He read a, a, an encyclopedia article, a French encyclopedia article about it, about Puro and Puronism. And it has some mistakes in it and some um, academic uh, absolutes, uh, academic skepticism, which says that we can't know anything. So it's a dogmatic system, and the ancient skeptics, the Puranists, said, "No, that's not skepticism. That's not so. That's not us. That's that's false. That's a wrong idea. Just like all the other wrong ideas, you know." It was a French encyclopedia by a guy called Bailey. Is that? Am I thinking of the right guy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And here, I, well, I'm led to believe he had a actually in that same volume uh, a number of, uh, I, I guess, proto descriptions of Buddhism in Japan as well. And I always wondered, maybe did David Hume read about that as well? I'm not sure how detailed those descriptions were, but I always wondered if there's a connection there. Interesting thought. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. And I, I, I don't know if I noticed any references to to the, those things being in that encyclopedia, which I've never actually seen. Um, so um, it would be a good thing to, to look into that, no doubt. But I, I don't think that... Um, Hume seems to have really known anything about Buddhism at all. So, and what he did know about Puranism, I think he, he he himself corrected it somehow in his mind. He got some of the wrong ideas, but he basically fixed it, even without knowing that you know that what he got from this encyclopedia article wasn't exactly it didn't represent Piro's thought very well, or even Sextus's necessarily. Um, yeah, but I don't think he he got anything about about Buddhism directly, but he did uh, get this point about the criterion and the so-called problem of induction, which is the the biggest problem in Western philosophy for the last couple hundred years ever since he he formulated, he didn't formulate a problem of induction, he never speaks about that induction. In fact, he uses induction a couple of times but in a different meaning. Um, but, um, but he does set up the problem, uh, which is essentially the same issue, the problem of the criterion, um, and he puts it out in a very interesting way, and so it's worth reading. Uh, I recommend to everybody to read his uh, his little book. It's a very little book, not not the huge thing that uh, modern philosophers are crazy about the treat, but the inquiry into human understanding. It's beautifully written. His English is beautiful. It's very clear, and you really get a feeling for what David Hume was all about by reading that. Some of the um... So when doing a little bit of research on this myself, some of the modern philosophy and, and the takes on, on these problems, I, I could not even comprehend what they were talking about. It was absolutely uh, ridiculous, some of them. I mean, just... they're, they're really, you might call them academic philosophers in the sense that they're doing it as a part of their academic work. So it does not necessarily have anything to do with 
with you might call real philosophy the philosophy that's for the sake of uh, philosophy for the for um, living <laughs> living for living yes for living thinking and so on on an everyday regular basis which is what which of philosophers are interested sure and, and particularly it's what i like about the greek philosophers was the fact that they lived uh, what they yes. thought it wasn't just like oh mm -hmm. uh, you know this is a theoretical construct that i think is important they actually stood by what they thought yeah that's one of the main things that they is required to do to be a, but it was remember that philosophy uh they what they he translate as philosopher it's a greek word uh and we've made it into our word philosopher well, our word philosopher is basically a pro university professor of philosophy these days and very few other people would qualify um, whereas in ancient the ancient world the word uh philosophos actually included um what we would call philosophers um or philosophy um and uh science uh, whatever we call science it was included uh technology including engineering um and lots of other stuff and religion um very definitely so um it, it didn't separate them one word stood for lots of things had a much broader meaning whereas our words in english tend to be much more not always but tend to be much more narrow and precise in some way that's a, a curse blessing and a curse so uh, yeah we should be avoid being misled by that I, I warn everybody about it many times in my book it probably is a bore it it sounds to me like then there's, there's almost like two streams of thought in western philosophy then so you have the skepticism mm. and, then yes. and from what you're describing it sounds like Pyrrho was maybe the opposite of i guess that aristotelian uh, stream of of thought the laws of thought that he has about you know um, I forget what they are exactly off the top of my head, but it, it sounds almost like the opposite to that. And it, it's interesting the way you're describing it, that, that it's almost like you have these two schools of thought that are in in conflict. And, you know, perhaps the church was the one that, that continued that Aristotelian angle of things. And then on the other hand, you've had this kind of skepticism that's survived through the ages and popped up at different times. Would that, would that be a an fairly overall accurate close Pyrrho and timon essentially considered you know pyrrhonism to be uh at least certainly timon was mainly our, our own almost our only you know actual uh testimony to Pyrrho himself uh from what fragments of his uh, works are, are preserved but he uh and Pyrrho apparently too considered pyrrhonism to be um one thing in all the rest of all other philosophy, which means philosophy and religion, whatever, to be another thing. So it's X and Y, you know. So, so they, uh, they they didn't distinguish. In other words, academic skepticism. Uh, we use the same word for pyrrhonistic skepticism, supposedly, and academic pyrrhonist skepticism isn't skepticism in the way that we use the term skeptical um, at all. It doesn't have, it's not really a good term for it. So Pyrrhonism is a much better term. But anyway, those classical academic skeptics who said that, you know, the, the extreme ones, that, um, you know, uh, we don't know anything and all these dogmatic statements, which are negative dogmatic statements, but they are not, you know, there's not, no valid, validity to them. The thing that characterizes Pyrrhonism, in my mind, um, Pyrrho's thought anyway, and I think, um, uh, the ancient, the early Pyrrhonists, as, as far as we know them, besides Pyrrho, 
was its um, its focus on logic, and so logic and um, and again ethics. Whereas when you get later on, you know, it, it becomes more and more um, a little bit more developed in different aspects in, in late skepticism, late Puranism. Um, but uh, they always had to fend off the uh, the academic skeptics. So academic skeptics would include um, uh, Plato to some extent, for example, Socrates, and um, and their continuators and the successors. Whereas Aristotle was a completely different school uh, of philosophy. I I think Aristotle was a genius, a great thinker and everything, but um, in some respects uh, misguided. <laughs> but, but anyway, everybody makes mistakes. So, but I, I was always impressed by Aristotle. Yeah, it's it's hard not to be, and it's it's difficult to criti not criticize these people, but maybe to um, reevaluate uh, some of the the assumptions that, particularly Aristotle, because he he has such a an enormous uh, impact on the way that we think and the way that we perceive the world, and it's not necessarily, you know, scientific. I would say, uh, you know, and perhaps many of the conflicts we have today are as a result of some of those laws of deduction but anyway it's a different discussion um so just circling back now um to another one of the uh i suppose you know controversial or heretical <laughs> theories in your book at least to some people um so, so uh, i wanted to get into this idea of um of brahmanism and and this uh differenti differentiation you make that the texts are wrong, so the, the Buddha was not um, uh, arguing or, or rebelling against uh, Brahmanism as it is uh, generally accepted, and that in fact he was he was rebelling against Zoroastrianism. And for those not in the know, um, this may seem like a small point, but uh, to Buddhists, that is a, a radical shift of their entire historical worldview, I'd say. Um, so we could, can we get into this a little bit um, and, and how you came to revise that, that understanding? Well, um, first I have to, to emphasize that we actually don't know anything about Brahmanism at all until the Greeks got to India because there are no sources in any Indian language, nothing, no accounts, no nothing. The only thing that we have in an Indian language before um, CE times is um, uh, a few uh, bits from the uh, inscriptions of King Priyadarshi that I mentioned from the middle of the third century, and um, that's BC. And he um, he limits um, he makes some specific um, um, injunctions forbidding animal sacrifice, uh, and he uses the Brahmanist uh, technical terms that are used in the Vedas. Uh, so um, this was pointed out by Pat Oliver. I would never know this, but anyway, that's in the uh, in the inscriptions. So that clearly it existed then, and so that it existed, so that he could say no <laughs> to the Brahmanists. No, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. There are several other things that he he forbids, which are specifically non-Buddhist or something. They're certainly they're they're Brahmanist, and he did uh, say that he uh, went to Sambodhi, which is uh, Bodhgaya. And uh, after that, he he decided to he started teaching the the Dharma, um, and preaching the Dharma. Well, instead of uh, campaigns of conquest, you will have campaigns of of um, 
I don't know, conversion or something, teaching people about teaching people about Buddhism. But it doesn't say Buddhism anywhere. The term Buddha Buddhism didn't exist yet. But um, but Dharma was is the term. And um, so far as Brahmanism, we don't know anything about it. But Zoroastrianism, we do know that Zoroastrianism was there in the area of North, what is now northern Pakistan, I guess, and how far, much farther than that, I mean, northwestern, um, then northwestern Indian subcontinent. Um, but how far beyond that, we don't know. But the, that was part of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. And the Achaemenid Persian Empire, the official um, uh, religion was um, Zoroastrianism. And that meant a belief in one God, Ahura Mazda, the God of heaven, who created heaven and earth, um, and um, it promises, you know, uh, the good people go to paradise and the bad people go down there into the, the bad place, and heaven, heaven and hell, you know, um, and this sort of thing. So this is first taught, so far as anybody knows, uh, by Zoroaster. Um, we don't know the date of the um, the Vesta in which uh, these um, statements are outlined, but we do have the dates for Darius the Great, the first uh, Persian, actual Persian ruler of this this great empire, um, and call, we usually call it the Persian Empire. It's not exactly accurate, but anyway, so he was a Persian, and he was a Persian emperor, so he, Persian Empire under him for sure. And uh, he um, he teaches these things in in his inscriptions, and he proclaims them. You know, these other people were doing these bad stuff. You know, worshiping the divas. The divas divas were um, not. Uh, there were deities like with a capital D that were wanting to be at the same level as God. There can only be one God. There can only be one emperor who is chosen by God and put in the throne by God. There can be there's one empire and so on. One, one, one. It's a mon monistic system, um, and it's extremely interesting. And in my book will talk about this in uh, the Scythian Empire at length. Um, but um, anyway, so that. They were there in Takshila. They are described. Um, there are bits and pieces uh, that we have from when the Greeks were there that tell us there were Zoroastrians there. Um, and um, <clears throat> so that would make logical thing when these people came in. The new religion comes in, teaching this completely radical belief system with, you know, there's only one God, not 25 of them or 10 or so many, you know, only one God, capital G God. In heaven, and the other ones don't count. There are lots of little g gods crawling around. Nobody cared about them much. Uh, just don't don't step on them. That's all. But anyway, there's capital G God in heaven. He created heaven and earth. You know, and there's good stuff. If you're good, you know, you'll go there. If you're bad, you go there. So be good, and so on and so on. These different ideas. Well, um, so that's Zoroastrian ideas. But it happens that those ideas, and this is not in my book. But um, while working on the Scythians, um, I read more about them and what Zora, what Herodotus actually has more to say about them than almost anyone. But there are also other things. We have lots of information about the Scythians that um, people don't pay much attention to. Um, that they had uh, essentially this same ideas. So uh, they had one capital G God in heaven and who's responsible for creating everything. And... Um, the first Scythian, uh, the Scythian uh, royal lineage, um, that's uh, the descent, descended from uh, heavenly God meeting with uh, a chthonic female um, deity, the daughter of the river god, 
of the Borysthenes River, uh, and that produced the, the ancestor of the Scythians, who had three sons, and the youngest son, who does this, who's the only one who succeeds at this one task, uh, which shows that he is, must be um, have heavenly blood or ancestry. So he became the ancestor of the Scythians. And the other ones, you know, they become ancestors of other people. But um, but anyhow, that myth, and there are several versions of it. Um, um, so it tells us that, that that story is there. And also they had uh, some of the things that Zoroastrians do that are very unusual and striking as being characteristic features of Zoroastrianism. They, they have this bundle of sticks that they carry. It's called a barsom. And they uh, cast them out, you know, and then they uh, pick them back up again. I don't, I don't know what they do with them, but that's what the Scythians are described as doing. They don't have a word for it, but they have these special practitioners which, who do that. Um, and other things. So um, it started sounding like, wait a minute, um, maybe the Buddha really was, I su suggested this in Greek Buddha, but maybe uh, the Buddha really was reacting against um, uh, against Scythian Zoroastrians, you might say, or pre-Zoroastrians. Um, and uh, the same is true of Zoroaster. Apparently he was he was reacting against um, people who were, had several gods or whatever. He said, only one, no, only Ahuramak. <laughs> and he's the one who preaches this very explicitly, so we know. But it, his language, when I realized that the language of, uh, of um, Yavestan language, it has two variants, Old Yavestan and Young Yavestan, but it's, um, it's identical to Scythian. So if you do a linguistic study of um, and what we know about the Scythian language, and there is material, um, and you can't be distinguished. If you can't distinguish, you can't differentiate them, we could say, they're the same. So they're the same. Uh, it's the same language. So that means that Zoroaster spoke Scythian. And so the teachings of Zoroaster, the Zoroastrian, those are actually Scythian teachings. As Buddha was Shakyamuni, was a, the sage of the Scythians, you know, it's a no-brainer. He was he was reacting against the traditional teachings, and maybe he got it directly, you know, from the Persian-introduced Zoroastrians, who were partly uh, also Scythians. There were lots of uh, Scythian um, uh, the 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 garrisons. Sure, and that's a connection there, right? So there was Scythian, uh, yeah, as you say, garrisons that, that assisted the emperor uh, Darius to. Uh to invade that that region so gandhara i think you you say yeah, that's right gandhara yeah sorry to, to stop you there i just wanted to finish my thought so okay so what i'm picking up here and this is the interesting part is that you're essentially what you're saying is that brahmanism is possibly uh younger than buddhism than than well at least buddhist what the buddhist said himself not not modern buddhism of course um and i just wanted to clarify this part because I think it's it's generally accepted, for example, that you have a text like the Rig Veda that was first, um, I guess it wasn't penned until relatively recently, but they, they suspect that the hymns in the Rig Veda, you know, go back to 1500 or 1000 BC or whatever they say. I think there's quite a range there. Um, but definitely back to Bron the Bronze Age step, which I would imagine is where the Buddha's ancestors came from. Uh, originally as well that kind of 
what is it, the Proto-Indo-Iranian cultures around there at the time. Is it right to say then that whatever those hymns were, is that is that separate to what you're describing here or, or, or whatever religion was based around those hymns? How, how does that fit in? Do, do you have any idea? Yes. Firstly, the Rig Veda, uh, the Veda, um, Rig Veda are um, not Brahmanists. They are... Um, They've been categorized together with uh, Brahmanism because eventually, over time, after the Vedas, there were later Vedas, Vedas, then there were the Brahmanas, and there were the this and that, you know, all these different categories of these non-Buddhist, non-Jain, whatever texts, um, this one particular system that develops. But if you look at the Rig Veda, there's no, not only no God, there's none of this stuff is there, none of it. There's no God, a God creating the, the the world. There's no heaven and and hell. No um, no consequences for anything, and um, the sacrifices that people did with sacrificing blood sacrifices of animals were all for purposes to you know get uh, something in, in this today in this life you know tomorrow, <laughs> not 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 any any other time. And if you do something good or or bad, whatever consequences you are from what you do. Then, the good or the bad, you know, you suffer the consequences or enjoy the consequences, and none of none of this is connected to that. So when you go to to the just to look at the descriptions of Brahmanism, uh, we don't have any description of Brahmanism before uh, Megasthenes. Actually, Megasthenes t- gives us a very good, um, fairly in depth description of uh, what the Brahmanas the Brahmanas were doing uh, back then, uh, and he distinguishes them from the Buddhists, the, the Shramanas. I didn't mean any, uh, uh, just any ascetic person, by the way, Shramana. It only meant Buddhists until the, into the Middle Ages. It only meant Buddhists. There's a, some false uh, scholarship out there making these claims, which is not true. Uh, but the Brahmanas, the Brahmanists, um, who are distinguished sharply by, uh, also by uh, this King Priyadarshi, by the way, just he distinguished the two different being Ashoka, popular. And the Ashoka inscriptions doesn't have anything to do with this. It's all about Buddhism, normative Buddhism. Uh, it's just completely different. Anyway, uh, yeah. Um, so, um, but the Brahmanists, as um, described by Megasthenes, are you know one God in heaven. He created the, the um, created the world, uh, the universe, um, and he permeates it, and rules it, and permeates it. And um, that was the other thing. And um, uh, anyway, heaven and hell is in, is 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 comes in there in the uh, later stuff. But it, even the earliest uh, Brahmana Brahmana of the Brahmanas and uh, those other categories of, of texts, mostly in Sanskrit, by the way, um, uh, those texts which have been pushed back way back back back. No, they they're all post Buddhist. This was shown not by me, but by Johannes Bron- Bronkhorst in his doctoral dissertation. And I have to say that um, I don't agree with much of his more recent work, uh, lots of work on early history of Buddhism and Brahmanism and so on. Some things I think are quite right, uh, but other things uh, I think are not right. So, uh, But I have to say that when it comes to this um, particular point, he does show exactly um, that um, the earliest um, which, which Brahmana it is, but uh, Brahmana, it has uh, the earliest of these texts that are specifically Brahma, Brahmanic. Um, it has B- Buddhist characteristics and features in it. Um, 
and um, you can't uh, you can't take them out. They're intrinsic. They, they were the, the things that apparently helped create um, Brahmanism. So Brahmanism didn't really exist right away. It seems like it it, it was um, um, accepting it accepted the Brahmanists or some of the people in India accepted Zoroastrianism. The Buddha, the Buddha and others, no doubt, um, rejected Zoroastrianism or the Scythian version of Zoroastrianism, which we can call Zoroastrian A or something, whatever. But anyway, that system. Um, and um, so the Brahmanists accepted most of it. God in heaven, you know, heaven and earth, all these you know, good and bad. Um, and um, uh, that, that stuff is, is, is in there. And whereas the, the Buddha uh, uh, didn't accept it, but the Buddhism, as it went along, developed certain specific characteristic features, which have to do with practice, with, you know, all kinds of things. And the Brahmanas picked up some of that. So that's in there. So you have, the, wait a minute, what is this doing there? You know, it's not, not what you would expect. So it can't have been around. I mean, as I said, Broncos is the one who, has shown this and um it's quite an incredible incredible notion because that that kind of flips everything on its head that people think they know about um you know the, the structure of religions at that time and I, I was just thinking now i just had the thought that um you have the agni ritual in uh hinduism today and obviously the zoroastrians were fire worshippers or still are um could be another connection there i guess so yeah very likely uh, but um, I think that, you know, late Zoroastrianism, yes, they have uh, this thing with fire and fire ceremonies and so on. But early Zoroastrianism, I don't think they have any mention of it. I'm not sure it's mentioned in the, in the, it might be, I just don't recall any in my reading of the, uh, the old Avesta. Uh, but anyway, the Scythians don't talk about it. It always struck me, and what's really interesting about what what you're saying, and when when I first read read your book, um, what what really struck me is that you know you have uh, many Hindus today, for example, that, that kind of paint the Buddha as like just another Hindu sage, which which always struck me as being uh, you know wildly uh, anachronistic, um, uh, to be honest, given what we know about people in the area at that time and. And what you're saying now really uh, is, yeah, quite extraordinary. And <laughs> nailing that home—that's uh, not not something many people would have an easy time accepting. I, I would imagine, particularly Hindu people. Have you have you had much interaction with uh, Hindu people that, that that have heard this? Um, I not Hindu uh, people, but with. Uh, uh, people interested in Buddhism from India and Nepal I had some um, interactions with them, and they're more interested in the trying to have Buddha be a, a local, you know, from from Nepal. I should mention, in connection with the the Brahmanism, it, uh, uh, Hindus wanting it to be, you know, uh, Buddha just another old, good old old ancient Hindu. Uh, said the same thing buddha was a giant you know <laughs> he studied with with uh, mahavira or something you know but there's just no evidence and this is one of the things that actually has been discussed by the scholars back and forth uh, and of course nobody can agree on anything but there just isn't any archaeological evidence for the existence of jainism until long after until after the the greeks were there anyway yeah, so no way that that's 
he never did any of that stuff. And he, he, the, the traditional stories have the Buddha, you know, and Mahavira and uh, who are the others, um, are the founders of various other ancient sects, you know, they all knew each other. And one of the other of these, uh, there's several of these stories, but such and such a king wanted to know uh, what to do about this. And he asked, well, you should ask the, the sages out there. So I, he, he went to this one, acted went to this one. And if only finally when he got to the Buddha, he got the, you know, the, right, the right answer, something like that. So he talked to all different guys, including Mahavira and so on. So they all knew each other. They went bowling together. You know, they were, they were good guys. And they, were, they just didn't agree on a lot of stuff. But they, they, they were cool. They knew each other. Uh, it's just, nah, it's all ahistorical fairy tales. I said, by the way, I love fairy tales. So don't get me wrong on that. I'm just saying that the stories that are masquerading as history about early Indian thought, they're from um, the late antiquity, the Middle Ages, and they're just absolutely, you know, just they're fantastic stories. You've read some of those stories, I'm sure. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I suppose we, we, we should make the statement that, you know, the history of something and, and the religious tradition themselves are probably a, l a little bit different. They're living things, aren't they, traditions? So you, you have to make that demarcation uh, a little bit, not not get too emotional about it about it all, <laughs> even though some people no doubt will. Um, so uh, one thing I wanted to talk about in terms of uh, texts and the veracity of texts um, is specifically with Buddhism, and you go to um, lengths to talk about the chronology of the Pali Canon um, and, you know, which texts come later and which texts, you know, how long was it written after the Buddha, you know, existed, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and what was interesting is I think you looked into the Chinese uh, canon. Is that correct? Um, so, so you, yeah, yeah. Could you go, like, are there any differences? I mean, is there anything there that you, you feel... Is, is more relevant than in the Pali or um, and and in terms of the Buddhist doctrine itself how is that how is that different do you know what I'm saying so how like when was it written um, you know how different is it do you think from the original Buddhism and yeah if we could just have a little bit of a discussion about you know which which bits of the canon are perhaps more relevant than others or in terms of their his, historicity um i would like to be able to do this too but it's actually um a huge topic and i'm not i'm not at all a specialist in it all i can say is that uh when the chinese first started translating um buddhist texts into chinese it was already the second century ce we don't have any translations, uh, verifiable translations from before that. It seems not the stories are are not, they're just stories. So, but when we actually have the text, then the thing is that they were officially they were presented at court, and so they have an official date, uh, such and such and such a year, such and such an emperor. You know, we know who that was and when that was, so we have dates on things. But in India, we don't have dates on anything, and none of that stuff is dated, um, and. Um, it's been shown by uh, scholars who I, I couldn't name right at the moment, but um, that um, it was only a very short time that a text, after a text appeared in India, evidently, it was translated into Chinese. This was not immediately the earliest period, but not long after that, they started getting texts on a regular basis. Uh, the newest texts, um, now, 
how they got them is some of them are written and some of them are oral. But anyway, they came to China and were translated into Chinese. Uh, so um, then it makes you think, OK, well, what about before that? Yeah, what about before that? When did they start having texts like this? Well, if they were in Sanskrit, excuse me, but we don't have any evidence for the that Sanskrit even existed, uh, despite what people say. Any hard evidence, I should say. No hard evidence, no manuscripts, no, no inscriptions, no nothing. The earliest inscription that's been said to be pre-CE uh, goes back a decade or two before the turn of the millennium back then. Um, and um, it's a crappy little, excuse me, I say not a very beautiful, not a very beautiful a little uh, stone with an inscription on it, which is in very poor Sanskrit. Um, so uh, it's not a good example of Sanskrit at all. But that's the first thing. Before that, there are, there's nothing. We have nothing in Sanskrit. Um, anything that was written was done in Prakrit. Pali is one of the Prakrits, and Gandhari is another Prakrit, and so on. There are various Prakrits, and these are Middle Indic languages. But they were actually attested way earlier than Sanskrit. So um, if there's anything in, in, in Prakrit that exists, the earliest texts that were translated into Chinese are said to have been translated from Gandhari, which makes perfect sense. The Pali canon in Sri Lanka is in Pali, which is a Prakrit. Uh, the dates for all these things are almost always, you can, I can, it's just sort of a rule for Oriental history, is that if they say something happened at such and such a time in antiquity, way, way back, you know, um, it's always a higher date. Virtually always a higher date. It just wasn't that old, you know, it's not that old. So you have to suspect all those dates and we don't have any ev hard evidence for them at all, none. So um, without hard evidence, we, when they found a, a cache of, of Gandhari manuscripts were found recently in um, Northwest Pakistan, Northeastern Afghanistan, in some uh, abandoned monastery, uh, they found these texts and they've been studied by people in several different uh, research institutes, in, mainly in Europe and the United States. Um, and they've been translating these things, and they're very important, some of them quite early, but mainly they're not earlier than the second century CE. And there's only a few that might be earlier than that. Uh, the dates, people give different dates. So, so really that's 700 years after the Buddha was meant to have lived. Possibly, yeah. But if the Buddha lived, let's just say, that he lived um, just around the time when Darius introduced, or just after the time Darius introduced Zoroastrianism. That was my original reason, one of the reasons for discussing it in my in Greek Buddha. And if he lived a little bit at that time, or a little bit after that, when Zoroastrian presence there would be strongly felt because it was still, you know, vibrant and there were people still um, teaching it and practicing it and not ha not having become localized or you know, nativized. Um, then it would have made a big impact on people with this, these new ideas. So that would be a, a good reason to react against it. And that was my justification for that. If, if we take that away and say it was just Scythians, well, actually the Scythians came in with Darius. It's still the same. It's not any different. It's just that they brought in the same teachings, you know. So the Scythians and the Zoroastrians um, in, the, in the Persian uh, Empire would have followed essentially the same same, roughly the same belief system. Maybe if they belong to an old believer type system, um, maybe they had different, uh, it was a little bit different, I don't know. But anyhow, that still puts the likely um, period of that impact 
And if Buddha himself is, since he um, has a you know, philosopher, he was probably not a, you know, a farmer or something. He was from the upper class. And as the tradition has, he was a prince. It actually makes perfect sense. It probably was something like that. So I guess you have the what you traditionally see is the, the brown, well, the you know the Brahmin class structure. So you have the priesthood and you know the Kshatriya, uh-huh. blah blah blah. Um, oh, I don't know about that. I, I I don't know about that. I know I know about that too. Yeah, yeah. Did, did the no, Scythians have a class structure? Do you think like a? They didn't. Like they had a feudal system, feudal like medieval feudal system, strict medieval European feudal system comes from Central Asia. It was reintroduced by the the Huns and the uh, the Goths. They introduced it into Western, reintroduced it into Western Europe. It had been gone, disappeared under Roman, you know, in the impact of the Romans, who were very Mediterranean and not feudal, but as a hierarchical feudal system. You know, God at the top, then the, the king, the, the great king. And then below him, you know, the dukes and the other sub-kings or whatever you want to call them, that system, but also with the, the religious beliefs uh, were similar to that. So I I think that's, that's we have to assume that's what the Scythian system was, what we know about the Scythian system. That's the way it was. Just to go into this, and I will finish up soon because I'm mindful of I've taken a lot of your time. Um, so, so my understanding of Scythians, and when you first started mentioning this, um, it, it was fascinating to me because like they're, they're a kind of a little bit of a mysterious culture. And obviously it was, they weren't literate, so they didn't write anything down as far as I know. Um, and I think most people's idea, and my idea anyway, is, is they're very much a steppe culture, drinking, you know, uncut wine out of skulls and and imbibing cannabis and teepees and you know this kind of stuff and and then of course you have the magnificent goldsmithing and artwork from the uh, mound burials which are spectacular and um, they did a good job obviously of bullying the sedentary cultures around the place which you know they're well known for audio is that a false narrative is it Uh, yes it's the opposite okay (laughs) they tried to bully them Darius invaded them. Yeah, they yeah. unsuccessfully. By, <laughs> yeah, they defeated them by running away. That was the classic um, uh, the guerrilla warfare. You know, they they really couldn't fight against this enormous army uh, containing a, about a million men, including all the support staff. So my my idea of them is that they're a pantheistic culture. So have, as you were saying, many gods and goddesses and stuff. And just quickly, I wanted to clarify, like, so so if they brought with them Zoroastrianism or if was it enforced on them by the emperor as a condition of their service or something like that how did they come to embrace Zoroastrianism well, I, I I didn't make it clear no it's the other way around so Persians the Persians uh Darius as being the first one that we know uh was actually a Persian and who was teaching these teachings but uh, it actually before him the Medes followed the same teachings very clearly. And the Medes had this, their Medes were actually Scytho-Medes. It was, they were part of Northwestern Iran, Northeastern Turkey was part of the Scythian empire at its greatest extent. Uh, and these people all became Scythianized and be, learned to speak Scythian. And the Median language is again, like Avestan, it's identical to Scythian, to what we have of it. Um, so it's, it's the same language. So it's not like, Persian is very different. So um, whatever their ideas were, they went along with them. So those people, the Scytho-Medes and 
to some extent, um, the Persians, they got these ideas about um, what we call Zoroastrian ideas. Now, it looks like they already had actual Zoroastrianism. That means the reformed teachings of Zoroaster. But Zoroaster's teachings are a reform, as he himself says, essentially tells us this, if you read the old, the old Avesta, um, that um, he, he, the old teachings had, uh, the old system had several different gods or contenders for being God. But if you look at the uh, what um, we hear about the um, divinity among the Scythians from the Greeks and from the Chinese, as a matter of fact, from the East, because they also had Scythians there, um, they had a, a system where there was this, it was a feudal system, like in heaven, as 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 on earth, with a, a supreme god, the capital G god, I call them, you know, that was God at the top. So it's a kind of like monotheism. People like to say, oh, it's henotheism because there were other gods. No, the other ones were not in the same category. They didn't belong to the same category. You have to categorize everything, and, and I talk a lot about categorization in the Greek Buddha, but I actually have a book on it um, <laughs> called, uh, um, it's in my bibliography called, what did I call it anyway? Um, but they don't call it categorization. Anyway, the, um, so the, um, they had this, this um, hierarchical system and the people further down the hierarchy, there were no slaves in the Scythian uh, realm. In, in the century Eurasia as a whole, they didn't have, didn't practice slavery. But the people at the bottom, you know, of the hierarchy, they didn't have anybody below them that they could order around. So, you know, if you go down from your dukes, you know, down to your earls and down to your counts and then, you know, down to your knights or whatever you got at the bottom, if there's nobody below you, you're at the bottom, well, then you're not really that well off. But they still, they weren't slaves. Um, and um, I, th I think that's a key thing that people argue about this. Sure. Uh, they seem to be referred to as quite a noble culture, like by Herodotus and other people like that, at least as far as I'm aware. Uh, for that reason, yes, uh, they, they. I think the Scythians have got a bad rap, but all Central Eurasian peoples have gotten a bad rap, um, and that is because the people writing the histories are all the enemies, and they were actually mostly enemies because, not always, but generally speaking, they were trying to invade Central Central Eurasia and take over the land because there was land out there to be taken, and so the Chinese were trying to do that, the Persians were trying to do that, the Romans were doing that. Just about everybody was doing that. And then when the a new people would become strong in the steppe and kick them out, you know, they expanded throughout the entire steppe zone. This happened like four or five times from the Scythians up to through the Turks and the Mongols. The Mongols were the pretty much the, the last one that really succeeded in doing this. And this enormous thing, they united the entire thing. And they went over a little bit into the borderland areas, which were part steppe, part, you know, part agricultural. And so in those are the regions where they, their ideas were transmitted directly to the people who were living there by creolization. They, they mixed with those people, they married them and their children, you know, spoke, sometimes they spoke the, the introduced language or they spoke the other language with some loan words, but they got a lot of the culture that way and they passed on those ideas. So it's uh, mainly, um, I've studied in great detail some aspects of the century Eurasian um, history with the neighboring empires. And it's virtually always, and they, the Romans and the Chinese actually tell you this, if you read it carefully, they say, well, actually it was the Chinese who were the ones who were invading the century, or the Romans' fault 
you know, where the Huns did this, they were just defending themselves. And the Huns mostly, by the, by the way, were just uh, allies of the Roman, Romans. So it's just the usual popular history of these things is completely wrong. And scholars are responsible for that. We haven't straightened it up. Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent way to finish it because I think this this Chris is going to be a nuclear bomb to a lot of people who are going to listen to it. But uh, you know, I love it. I love it. It's great. Well, I know you wanted to talk more about other things, but um, I guess we didn't get to them. So that's. Uh, that's okay. Maybe next time. I think, um, I, look, I'm really looking forward to your book coming out. And um, yeah, maybe we can catch up again afterwards because uh, yeah, I'd love to go through it. Um, uh, you know, the, the history of the step is uh, endlessly fascinating to me. Um, so I'd love to talk about it again. Um, I just had a couple of questions, if, if you don't mind, sure. from, from the sure. listeners. Um, Mr. Beckwith has some idea on this, or Dr. Beckwith, I should say. What uh, Greek contributions to Buddhism via the Indo-Greek element that survived today? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes, a good question. And um, um, the problem with this, again, is it's a partly historiographical problem to, to determine um, what we don't have really good evidence. You know, no, nobody wrote anything down about this when it was going on. Not a lot of accounts of the Indo-Greeks uh, in any language. Um, but uh, one of the things that happened, and that's uh, in my, um, um, it's I think, I actually have an article about uh, the, the invention of the monastery and monasticism. I would call it an invention. It was developed suddenly. So that pretty much counts as an invention, doesn't it? Under the, the Kushans, the Kushan Empire. And the Kushans were um, a, a late Scythian speaking people. Um, who, who moved into the area of what is now um, southern Uzbekistan and northern Afghanistan, uh, back, ancient Bactriana, and um, and became eventually founded an empire, um, and um, and in that they they were they seemed to have sponsored all sorts of different religions. So people can't say that they were really just pro-Buddhist. But one of the things that Buddhists did when they spread and this is the normative Buddhism I'm talking about. That means standard Buddhism, like we know with monks and uh, the Vinaya and all the sutras and all that sort of thing. Um, when this uh, develops, um, one of the things they do when they move to a new culture, a new country, or a new with a new culture, a new language, uh, they always have to uh, make their way somehow. And they go do it by going to the top. Every time they go to the king or the dukes or whatever, you know, the, the rich people, the wealthy people, the powerful people, to get them to support them. And this is partly because Buddhism, Buddha, monks weren't supposed to work, you know, and they needed to have support to have a, um, a monastery, a vihara. Um, they weren't called viharas in the beginning, by the way. Uh, they were called uh, deras. It's a different word. But um, but anyway, the, so this, this uh, for some reason, the Kushans thought, okay, this is a great idea. They will do my work, you know, and um, spread Buddhism all around this area, you know, far beyond his armies could go. And they did all the way practically to China itself, just to the borders of China, all the way across Central Asia. And uh, to the west, too, and south and east into India. And in some places, the Kushan Empire, um, you know, spread in that area. Um, as well. But uh, if you look at from the, the early viharas, these 
monasteries from the outside, um, they look like forts, fortresses. They cannot be distinguished from fortresses. Um, and the monks, um, um, they're regimented. They're all, everybody got their head shaved. They wore a standard robe. Um, ideally something to cast off, but it probably wasn't. It was just they gave them something, you know. They wore the standard robe um, and everybody did everything. They lived in a, in a standard cell, standard cells, cell-like thing, like a barracks. That's what it was. And um, and that's where they, 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 every time they moved into a new area, they built more of these. And uh, there's a, a, a project, I forgot the name of this project, but I have an article about this which uh, I will send to you if you like, to send me a, a reminder about Viharas in the Kushan Empire. And it talks exactly about how this happened. Um, and I think this was, I, I don't talk about the plan itself, how it developed, but it, it's been thought for, by, for a long time, suspected that it had something to do with a, a Greek, um, a typical Greek plan. It doesn't look like a typical Indian type plan or a Central Asian plan at all. The architectural plan, looking at it you know, vertically, Looking down at the the outlines of the the thing, it's very distinctive. Once you see it, and they're all the ones built by the Kushans. They all follow this exactly the same plan. It was like a blueprint, all the way all the way as far as as Magadha in the east and north, all, well into Central Asia, all the way to China. You, see, you can tell them right away when you find a vihara. That's what it is. It has this distinctive plan. So I think that maybe a Greek contribution. And something about the argumentation that they did in the monasteries. The Greeks were really addicted to uh, disputation. Mm. And, uh, and these were the colleges you're referring to earlier. There was no distinction between a monastery and a college. It was this one thing. You know, it eventually it kind of diverged in, in the West. But, but anyhow, I think this is in this book, The Warriors of the Cloisters. It's about what they were doing, what they were arguing about, and how, or how they argued. Uh, actually, how they argued, and uh, about the monasteries, and the the colleges, and how they spread as through Islam into Western Europe, and it comes from that uh, area, Gandhara, seems to be the home of it. Well, I'm getting um I'm getting reminders of when I was in Tibet, and I was in uh -huh. the I forget which monastery it was. It was mm -hmm. anyway, it was one of the ones in Lhasa, one of the big uh -huh. ones. And if you look at uh -huh. those monasteries, and I guess it's to do with the ge ge uh, geography as well. But they, they look kind of fort-like. And, and this particular group of monks uh, did mm. debating uh, during the day. And um, yeah. yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm getting reminded of that, actually. Uh, with, debating, with you yeah. talking about yeah. that, yeah. Um, and and um, in one of your other books on, on the step, um, sorry, on, I forget what it was, but it was... Fires of the Silk Road? That's the one, yeah. Um, so just quickly, there's a connection between these colleges then and Islam, because a lot of people in the Islamic tradition went to study there, or am I misplacing the, the narrative? It's, in, it's, it's, it's given in my book, Prayers um, of the Cloisters. Unfortunately, um, um, the way I was typeset at that particular spot is easy for people to miss if they're not reading carefully, which people do. <laughs> Every word is important. But anyway, um, it, um, the, as it, what happened when Islam came in, the Arabs came in, right? There was a part of the, this big imperial conquest. That's nothing to do specifically really with Islam. But Islam went along with it because they were, it was one of the things that motivated them to join together. The, the things that, thing, one of the things that united the Arabs. 
in the beginning. And so they went in all the way into Central Asia and so on, and all these areas, uh, the area of Bactria, uh, what is uh, northern Afghanistan, southern Uzbekistan, and beyond. Uh, those areas were heavily Buddhist. Well, despite what people th would think, they didn't go in and just destroy everything and kill everybody. Uh, people were valuable and they didn't want to kill everybody. They wanted people to become Muslims, so they encouraged them by giving them a tax break if you converted. That's basically what the, the thing was. Um, Did it work? Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I wonder it spread event, so quickly. Yeah. Well, Islam developed a high civilization you know, with all these people from these cities that they're, especially in Central Asia, that was the center of it of it all. Um, and so a lot of Buddhism came in somehow. We don't know exactly uh, the details of, of it, but so far as the college is concerned, the monastery, the college, monastery, monastery, college, they were all over Central Asia, including especially Bactriana. And um, those were converted. Uh, when they converted, the people converted to Islam. Well, so let's just say I'm sitting here, you know, you're sitting there and we decide to convert to Islam or some other religion. Um, and so, well, my house right now is a, not a religious house, but then it will become a, um, an Islamic house. Um, or my, the college is not not a, college, a Christian college or something like that. There, there weren't any yet. Um, but it were Buddhist ones, and they became Islamic ones. And everything exactly the same with uh, the same, uh, the, the architectural plan was, is identical. Um, and not only the architectural plan, but also the um, the, the walk in Arabic, what is it called? The found the foundation um, the foundation don the don donative foundation or whatever you call it um, for that institution. Um, they follow the same rules. <laughs> so so um, um, uh, the Buddhists became Muslims and they still stayed there. They were still there. The best one we know is uh, the Nobahar and Balkh, uh, Noah Vihara, the new Vihara. It was a great one, uh, one of the biggest ones that Shranzong stayed there on his journey to India uh, and uh, studied with somebody there, got one of these huge texts, which he translated, which we have because he, he got it and brought it back. He lugged it back. It's the biggest text in the Buddhist canon. Uh, but um, they were doing that stuff. So uh, shortly after that, the, the, the Arabs came in. They were still using this, though. The Nobahar remained a, basically a Buddhist institution, evidently, for another hundred years at least. Um, and it, there are many aspects of early Islamic civilization which are due to them. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, because from a religious point of view, and I was talking to a traditionalist scholar that had mm -hmm. compared Christianity, you know, Judaism, Islam, and and Buddhism, mm -hmm. and and a few other things. But mm -hmm. there's there's striking similarities in Islamic doctrine to Buddhism, and mm -hmm. it seems in many ways to be closer to Buddhism than it does to like a Trinitarian religion, like Christianity or, or uh, Judaism, for example. It's, you know, the conception of the absolute and all these kinds of things you, you could yes, see yes. as, as yes. easily deriving from, from that interaction. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, so just um, one more, I guess, uh, just yeah. because I, I know sure. this person was particularly interested in your take on um, uh, Lao Tzu. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I can never... I, 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 used to, I lived in China for a while. I always thought the Z was a J, but I, I could be wrong. No, anyway, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a DZ. DZ. Right. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, I can't make the sound. So, <laughs> um, so, so his question is, um, 
I understand there are some striking uh, similarities between Taoism and Buddhism. Uh, how accurate is it to say that old Taoism uh, may be closer to the original Buddhism than modern Buddhism? So is it is is Taoism uh, because, as you say in your books, and we didn't talk about this today, but um, that that the historical Buddha may well be um, Lao Tzu. Yes, it, it seems to be the name. The name, his name, Lao Tzu, is just, um, it's a traditional uh, short version. All the ancient Chinese philosophers have names like that. But Lao Tzu doesn't follow the pattern uh, because of the Lao part. And he has another name. His full name is, is said to be Lao Dan. Well, Lao, that character uh, in ancient Chinese, they say, well, this is another character. It's also, it's the same as a character it's now, those are now modern pronunciations, by the way. So this is more than 2,000 years ago. The Chinese language underwent vast changes in that period of time. It's twice, at least, major, major changes. So unrecognizable almost from what it was before. But anyway, uh, one of the, the other alternate one was Kao. Well, Kao would come regularly from Gao, if you were following the usual rules for reconstruction. So and then the... the um, uh, Lao Dan, the Dan part in modern Mandarin pronunciation, that's modern Mandarin pronunciation of both, that was pronounced Dam. So then it's Gao Dam. And um, there was a final A ah after that M, a short one. So it's Gao Tama. And there, it, it, there's even, it's a well, yeah, they, maybe they got, it, they got it from the Gandhari. So it would be a Gandhari form. Well, the other reading for those characters is Gudama, which is exactly Gandhari. So one way or the other, you can't avoid it. It's just clearly that is the name of, um, of Gautama. Did they actually have the Buddha there? No. Nah. Um, it's just that the teachings, somebody was there teaching those teachings, and they called him probably um, Godama or something like that because he kept saying, as the master Godama says, the master Godama says, the master Godama says, you know, that's how they're teaching the ideas. And so some of his ideas made their way to China. They're very clear. The very beginning of the, the Tao Te Ching is just, you know, all things are, the dharmas are impermanent. That's Tao Ka Tao, Fei Chang Tao. All the, the dharmas that can be um, expressed or something like that are impermanent. Literally, what it, people don't translate it that way, but not eternal. Not eternal means impermanent. You know, so. it's, it's fascinating to think that... Um... Like you, you could have a, an initial influence from, you know, the, the oldest Buddhism or pretty, pretty old Buddhism that turned into Taoism. Mm -hmm. And then later on, you know, in the 800s, someone else comes from India and introduces Buddhism. And then you have this amalgamation in China of, of these two almost streams of Buddhism that have just changed over time. And then they've led to a, the creation of something else. It's, uh, it's quite, quite something uh, to think about. What did you say happened in the 800s? I didn't quite catch um, that. So I think that's when the first patriarch of, of Zen or Chan, as they know, and um, it, it was, was first meant to have been in China or made his way to China. I think his name's Bodhidharma. Um, and it, it may not have been the 800s. It could have, I, that's just what I, what I thought, but I could be wrong. Yeah, that would be uh, Buddhism in, in China, uh, organized Buddhism, including Bodhidharma, is all CE or AD times. It's not... Uh, not BC. Okay, so, but not as late as the 800s, earlier than that. But Bodhidharma in, in Japan, that's around the time when Bodhidharma's teachings made their way to Japan, uh, or whoever he really was. 
but the Buddha himself, you know, the Laozi, that represents somebody who had teachings of, of the Buddha, and that can be dated the, at no later than about 300 BC because of uh, the, the earliest manuscript of the, uh, of the book, Tao Te Ching, the book of Laozi, uh, is found in a, a Chinese burial, and which has been dated uh, on, on other grounds. So it had to have been written and copied over um, long before that. But anyway, no later than that burial was closed, which is um, just after 300 BC. Well, then that would be the earliest text, textual reference then, wouldn't it? That is uh, one of the earliest textual, let's see, um, that would be almost exactly the time of Megasthenes, and, and uh, 20 years after Pyrrho. All this happening is about the same time. There's a reason for that. So um, I, I talk about that a little bit in my book, um, Scythian Empire, and um, and wh why things happen when they happen. Uh, but... Um, but that's about all I can say about it right now. As we're, as you said, we're <laughs> gone a little bit. We have, but it's been an an amazing chat, Chris. Thank you. So, just quickly, um, could you tell us a little bit when your book's coming out, and just just plug your projects that are coming up? Sure. Um, I have two new books coming out. One is um, uh, the Scythian Empire, um, and the subtitle is uh, Central Eurasia and the Birth of uh, the Classical Age. From Persia to China, long subtitle, but my tradition, I guess. Um, and that's coming out from Princeton and supposed to be in the fall of this year. Uh, and um, um, it's about the Scythians, Scythians and uh, their 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 empire. It wasn't an empire; it didn't last for very long, like all the other steppe empires. But it spread all over the place, and and they spread Scythian and their. Scythians' ideas, and um, and they had a strong influence even after they didn't have a great empire. Um, they had local influence in all those regions, especially north northern China and uh, what is now northern Iran, um, approximately, but and Central Asia. <clears throat> but anyway, um, uh, talks about them and it talks about all the different things that they they influenced, including uh, clothes. They were the the, the style masters of the age. Everybody talks about the wonderful clothes and they usually credit them to, to the Medes. But when you look at the uh, paintings and you see, oh, wow, the, the Greek vases have lots of paintings of, of Scythian warriors. Uh, yeah, I've seen uh, uh, several um, renditions of, I think it was Kurgan burials of some of the ceremonial gear that they're buried with. And yeah, they got some... Uh, Impressive swag, I, I think, is is yeah, the, new, right. the new way to describe it. That's for sure. Well, um, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. This has been absolutely fascinating. I could probably go for another two hours, to be honest. I had so much material, but um, I guess we can maybe look at covering that next time. Um, just for sure. the listeners, I'm going to post your um, your book links, I guess, to Amazon, and yes. uh, I'll keep everyone informed of uh, the publication of uh, this new book coming up. But uh, yep, thank you for your time again. And, and this has been a, a wonderful chat and I got a lot from it. Well, thank you very much. Awesome. Take care.